Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade, a podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode, I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird, which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny. All that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade or the pot and poisoner curious social history or the great swan mystery of 1935 will follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today wherever you are in the world welcome to weird in the wade It's Monday, the 2nd of December, 1957, just before eight in the evening. On a dark hillside, in freezing weather, four men are staring skywards. Every now and again, one of them stamps their feet on the crisp, frosty ground, just to keep the blood flowing. Occasionally, a distant car or lorry trundles by on the Great North Road. One of the men, Alan, a local farmer, is regretting not bringing his flask of tea with him. Should he go back to the car and fetch it? And risk missing it? Whatever it turns out to be? No, he'd never forgive himself. He returns his gaze skyward and banishes the thought of a steaming, comforting flask of tea. Another of the men, Patrick, is fiddling with some fancy recording gear he's brought with him. BBC stuff he's borrowing from work for the night. He shivers and fumbles with the buttons on his recording machine. He doesn't want the batteries to go flat, but he needs something to do though. So he just keeps testing, recording snippets of the night around them. Busy work to keep his mind off what might turn up in the night sky later. John, the man who's brought them here together, is rummaging in his pockets again. He keeps taking his pipe out, looking at it then putting it away again. Patrick wishes he'd just light it and be done with it. But John doesn't seem nervous, just excited. The final man in their party is standing a little away from the others, his binoculars scanning the horizon purposefully in a manner he is clearly accustomed to. He's Flight Lieutenant Jack Hunter of RAF Henlow, 24 years service under his belt, an expert in aircraft and missiles. The 8pm train from Biggleswade to London rumbles past in the distance and then the night around them falls silent again. Until... There! There, chaps! Do you see it? Hunter points. The other men look, scanning in the direction Hunter's binoculars are trained in. Patrick, the BBC man, flicks on his sound recording machine and holds his breath. Do you see it yet? It's amber in colour, moving fast, directly towards us. They look and yes, yes, they see it, but they don't know what it is and it's coming right for them. What these men witnessed that night becomes known locally as the Toplers Hill episode and there's much more to it than meets the eye. Conflicting accounts, threatening phone calls and possible contact with a person not of this planet. One thing we know for sure is that whatever happened on Toplers Hill on the 2nd of December 1957 was categorically not part of an elaborate and ingenious flying saucer hoax. A hoax that captured the country's imagination and is commemorated in monument form just a few minutes' walk from my home. Welcome to Weird in the Wade, Episode 2, Flying Saucers Over Biggleswade. I'm your host, Nat Doig. On this episode, we'll investigate what really happened on Topless Hill that night, along with John Whitworth's strange, 
multiple encounters, including with what he thought was an alien being. We'll explore how this mysterious event on Topless Hill leads to a flying saucer hoax being discovered. And yet, the Topless Hill incident is not part of that hoax. We'll meet a working class engineering hero who built a flying saucer in his shed, and a woman defying conventions of the time by investigating UFOs with her trusty Labrador. It seems like, for the last 70 odd years, UFOs have always been topical. Only a couple of months before recording this podcast, three unidentified flying objects were shot down over the US and Canada in February 2023. One was confirmed as a Chinese spy balloon, but the other two are still surrounded in mystery and speculation and haven't to date been recovered. But even this recent heightened interest in unidentified flying objects, or aerial phenomena as the military now like to call them, is nothing compared to how flying saucers gripped the popular imagination in the 1950s. By the mid-50s, flying saucer fever was sweeping through sleepy towns and villages of Great Britain, including Biggleswade. And I want to take a little bit of time exploring what was going on in 1950s Britain, because they really were obsessed with flying saucers back then. It's important to point out that in the 1950s, the term UFO was not universally used. Organisations of people who wanted to investigate the phenomena in a more systematic and scientific way were beginning to use the term unidentified flying object in a bid to move away from what they saw as the sensationalist term flying saucer. And to be fair, a lot of the flying saucer sightings reported at the time were not saucer shaped at all. But the media and your average person on the street in, say, 1956, would refer to what we might call a UFO as a flying saucer. In many ways, it's not surprising that sightings of objects in the sky were becoming more common and of more interest back then. During the Second World War, a handful of UFO sightings were reported by military personnel and civilians who were having to keep a keen eye on the skies, alert to enemy bombers and missiles like the V-2 rockets. So it's not surprising that this vigilance for what might be flying above you in the skies continued. At the same time as this increased vigilance, there were many more identified craft flying above our skies than ever before. Commercial aircraft were increasing in number, as well as continued military activity as the Cold War grew in intensity. So there really were more flying objects. So it seems only logical some of those might be reported as unidentified by the public especially if they were military-related. And military exercises were stepping up as the political tensions of the Cold War between the West and the Soviet Union grew. This escalated further when on the 4th of October 1957, Sputnik, the first man-made satellite, was launched into orbit by the Soviets. It fell back into the Earth's atmosphere on January the 4th, 1958, creating concern about whether it would land back on Earth in a destructive way. The launch of Sputnik marks the start of the space race between the US and USSR. The American satellite Explorer 1 was launched successfully on the 31st of January the following year, 1958. The British public, geographically between the US and Soviet Union, watched on as these satellites were launched into the skies above them. It's hard to imagine what a big, exciting but also worrying thing all of this was to the average person. It was all anyone could talk about. My mum's pet goldfish, which she had aged five in 1958, was called Sputnik. She remembers at the time hearing on the radio and listening to her mum and aunties talk about Sputnik and about flying saucers. What were they? What would you do if you saw one? And also knowing my nana and great aunties having a laugh at some of the more outlandish claims about aliens. I can imagine though that there was a general anxiety that these first tentative steps into space could somehow invite something from out there to come and see what was going on down here. No one had walked on the moon yet. Some people still clung to the belief that Mars had canals on it back then, signs of an industrial civilization, not categorically disproved until Mariner 4 sent back photographs of Mars's red but barren surface in 1965. Obviously, there were many others who believed that the increase in flying saucer reports were down to military activity, and that was referred to at the time in the newspapers as 
hush-hush experiments with flying craft, missiles or satellite technology. Over in the US in 1948, there was the Roswell incident, where reports of a crashed flying saucer were quickly denied by the same military that had issued the initial flying saucer report. A weather balloon was blamed for the confusion. This incident seems to have made the subject of flying saucers newsworthy first in the US and then over here in the UK. During the 1950s, the number of flying saucer sightings increases considerably. I did a general search over a two-year period, 1956 to 58, through a newspaper archive, and I found 13 separate incidents reported, many of which get multiple newspapers covering them, so the number of articles is much greater. I did a more detailed search of just a two-week period in 1958, and that generated six flying saucer reports, not related to any that we're covering today, and a UFO investigation organisation of the time reported receiving two sightings a week. During the 1950s, famous UK flying saucer sightings happened in as diverse places as Portsmouth, County Derry, Northern Ireland, Boston and Sleaford in Lincolnshire, Runcorn, Cheshire, Barnes and Hammersmith in London, Glasgow, and of course, Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. It wasn't just flying saucer sightings that were whipping up interest. Between 1956 and 58, two flying saucer films from the US were in British cinemas, claiming to show evidence of aliens or UFOs. A colour film from Norway also touted evidence. Not a week went by without a science fiction film featuring flying saucers being on release. The Caxton Hall hosted a talk by an 81-year-old woman who claimed to have spent time living with aliens. A rally was held by flying saucer enthusiasts at astronomical observatories across the UK looking for evidence of flying saucers. And in December 1956, Santa arrived at a children's Christmas event in a flying saucer rather than his traditional sleigh. There was even a report in early May 1958, before our hoax was uncovered, that people in the Manchester area were setting off homemade flying saucers and rockets that were exploding and causing a lot of concern. It's clear that there was a huge appetite for flying saucers, and the press generally treated the subject with respect. But often there was a subtext to the articles, a raised eyebrow in the writing, so to speak. Reading letters from the public sent into newspapers at the time, it's clear that, like today, there were those who ardently believed that UFOs were from outer space, and others who thought they were Earth-based military inventions. And there were also some who found the whole thing very amusing. And it's to this backdrop of flying saucer fever that our sightings on Topless Hill and our separate flying saucer hoax take place. And the two are intertwined in a very intriguing way. Before we explore what happened on Topless Hill, I'm going to tell you about the Biggleswade Flying Saucer hoax, how it came about, who was behind it, and how it was discovered, because its discovery is closely linked to the investigation into Topless Hill. The Biggleswade Flying Saucer hoax was both national and international news for some weeks in May and June in 1958. The mastermind behind it was a working class dad and judo instructor. He's pictured with his shirt sleeves rolled up and wearing a knitted tank top. He had a long handsome face, a warm smile and the fashionable brill-creamed hair of his time. Meet Frank A. Russell, our ingenious engineer who built a fully operational flying saucer in his garden shed and fooled the inhabitants of Biggleswade for nearly a year, and all in the aid of a good cause. He was born in Biggleswade in 1918, and like many working-class children of the time, he left school at 14. But he wasn't like other teenagers. He had a passion, a passion for engineering, and for inventing, and for grand building projects. And his first focus was not on the skies, but on the seabed. At age 15, he designed his first diving helmet, which he describes like this. The first practical diving helmet I made was when I was 15 and it was built from an empty five gallon oil drum with a plate glass window, some scrap rubber sheeting, a length of garden hose and a motor car type air pump. 
In spite of its Heath Robinson appearance, it actually worked efficiently at depths varying to 30 feet. It was tested, incidentally, in a flooded pit at Alsey. A year later, in 1934, he had designed and built his first submarine model. But World War II interrupted Frank's inventing, and he served in Africa, Italy, Sicily and Greece. But even whilst embroiled in the conflict, he still had a keen eye for inspiration, and after observing some metal floats off the coast of Italy, he was inspired to take his submarine building to the next level. After the war, whilst he was living in a prefabricated house on George Street, Biggleswade, he started work on his manned submarine. By September 1949, his submarine had progressed so well that the local paper ran a story about it. Frank claimed it will be the smallest manned submarine ever built. He was working on it with two friends, Frank Pope and Bill Keyes, and he was keen to give them credit, although they seemed less keen on the limelight. A month later, Frank's submarine was gaining interest from as far afield as Dundee in Yorkshire. The article in the Dundee Evening Telegraph tells us that he had been building the submarine for 14 months and that the dimensions were 16 feet 6 inches by 2 feet 6 inches. There is just enough room for one man, Frank, to steer it. It weighed half a tonne and was fitted with oxygen tanks and cells that can absorb carbon dioxide. It had a telephone system so Frank could stay in touch with a boat which travelled behind it. The sub could be towed but had its own engine and could submerge under its own power. Let's just stop for a minute. An ordinary working man in 1949 with a couple of his mates built a fully operational submarine in his back garden and it was fitted with carbon dioxide scrubbers. Frank's hope was to test the sub on the 4th of November 1949 in the River Ival between Bedford and Biggleswade and apparently film crews were interested in attending the test. Frank was keen to get outside funding and he tells the press how much time and money it is costing him to build. Basically sets up a 1950s version of a GoFundMe scheme for his submarine project. He was ahead of his time in many ways. Six months later, in April 1950, Frank again spoke to the press about his project and he has a very canny and novel way to encourage further support. Firstly, he said, I am amazed at the interest my project has aroused, not only in this country, but in others. Letters were sent into the Biggleswade Chronicle praising the submarine project from as far afield as Canada and Australia. He explained that his submarine is different from a normal craft in so much as it is specially designed for exploring and photographing the seabed. There are underwater searchlights on the hull. But if readers weren't moved to back his project for just its engineering prowess, he put forward a reason for building the sub that was guaranteed to grab headlines and attract backers for a very different reason. He announced that he was building the submarine to search for Atlantis. Now, before you judge Frank for saying this, Listen to his explanation. It's probably the most intellectual argument for the search for Atlantis that I have ever read. There are many references to this lost continent in the works of ancient historians. Plato, for instance, gives the date of the catastrophe as about 11,500 years ago and said both his father and his grandfather had knowledge of the existence of Atlantis. Others who referred to it were Heslod, Euripides, Seneca, Pliny, Herodotus, who mentions it frequently, Virgil and others. I believe that there are too many references to Atlantis for it to be merely a legend. The Earth is millions of years old and our accurate knowledge of history is a mere couple of thousand years or so. It is quite possible that there were other people and civilizations of which we have no knowledge at all. I don't know if Frank's interviews with the press at the time generated the funding that he and his friends needed, but in June 1951, his submarine is featured in Biggleswade's Festival of Britain exhibition, and it is referred to as a working and tested submarine. I believe it was tested in the sea, but I haven't found any photographic evidence for the test. I have told you all of this because I think it tells you a lot about Frank as a man. He was inventive, hardworking, had a great sense of humour and clearly was ahead of his time in many ways. And not just from an engineering point of view. 
The fact that he was a judo and jiu-jitsu instructor in Biggleswade, who went out of his way to encourage women to join his club, was quite a progressive thing to do at the time. Frank seems to have been a likeable and extremely talented engineer, also clearly determined and extremely intelligent. He was a great communicator and wasn't shy of appearing in the newspapers, nor for using the media in a very sophisticated way to draw attention to and to bring in funding for his project. The way he invokes Atlantis as a reason to build his submarine, but does it in such a scholarly way, shows how clever he was at what today we'd call PR. I found no more references to the submarine after June 1951, and Frank does admit that he started building a prototype flying craft in the early 1950s. It seems after the completion of his working one-man submarine, he shifts his focus skywards. So in the mid-50s, he was basically tinkering with what we think of today as drones. Again, we have Frank's own words for what motivated him to move from tinkering with flying models to creating a large flying saucer. And it was all because he was disappointed in the amount of charitable revenue Biggleswade's 1957 carnival brought in. So Biggleswade holds a carnival in June each year. There's a week-long set of events from a duck race along the river to pub quizzes, discos, and then the actual carnival parade with an elected king and queen and a fair on the Saturday. In fact, the carnival will be in Biggleswade just two weeks after this episode is released. Frank was involved in the 1957 carnival. I wonder if his judo group did a demonstration at it. And he and his friends were a little disappointed by the size of the crowds at the event. So Frank and his two accomplices, Mr Jay Bates and another who remained anonymous, got together to decide how they could make the next year's carnival a real success. I'll let Frank's own words take over the story from here, which are taken from a letter he sent into the local newspaper after his hoax was discovered. We hit upon the idea of a flying saucers, of which so much has been heard in the press and on TV, etc. I had already constructed a small working model some years previously. It was not difficult to make a larger four feet diameter model on the same principle and suspend it on a large meteorological balloon, which we had intended for use in aerial photography. The whole assembly was wound up and down by means of a reel and line. The plan was to show it at various places at night in intervals for some months, thus creating interest and curiosity. And then, a week or so before the carnival week, an anonymous letter to the press would inform them that a saucer would appear over the town. We thought then, and still do, that this little scheme would have attracted large numbers of people to Biggleswade. After all, it's for a very good cause, and we had no qualms about it. It must be realised that secrecy was essential, and we dare not let anything be known at all. We have all had to tell more white lies recently than ever before. There's a lovely photograph in many of the newspapers of the time, showing Frank with his flying saucer. He holds it from the top. It's not much bigger than a large golfing umbrella in circumference. It's octagonal in shape, and it rises to a dome in the centre. There does appear to be holes cut into it, which light is shining out of, but the whole surface is covered in silver foil. Frank has his sleeves rolled up and is wearing a knitted tank top and is grinning mischievously at the camera. He's looking a little older than when photographed with his submarine, looking more like a trendy dad now. The London Weekly News says he's earning £11 a week from his engineering job. This is a little above the national average for the time, and I'm guessing is quoted to indicate that he's a skilled engineer being paid a good wage, but he's by no means a rich man. Frank admits in the London Weekly News that he sent the saucer up five or six times and describes how no one actually saw it the first time he flew it. He changed location to a playing field near his house the second time and the change of location did the trick. My mates asked me in the pub if I'd seen a flying saucer. I had a hard job keeping a straight face. They explained how it had hovered stationary for several minutes and then vanished in a terrific speed with a flash of light. The flash of light was made by uh, an ordinary firework. So it appears from my research that the UFO sightings were a local topic of conversation down the pub before May 1958, rather than making it big in the national news. But we do have evidence that these sightings were being reported, and reported to someone because of how the hoax is uncovered. Enter our amateur UFO investigator, John Whitworth, again. 
as Frank explains in his letter to the Biggleswade Chronicle newspaper on Friday, June the 6th. However, other unidentified objects have apparently been hurtling about beds of late and investigations into these got us involved as well. Subsequently, we have been blamed for the lot. These inquiries have been made mainly by Mr J Whitworth of Shepherd, who is well known for his broadcasts on local events and has spent many hours and travelled thousands of miles on these investigations. It was his efforts to track down the bed's UFOs that led to our idea being discovered. We have admittedly been deliberately misleading him at times during his inquiries. The temptation to have some fun with the saucer was too great as people may imagine but Mr Whitworth has behaved like the true sportsman he is and all is forgiven. We would like to emphasise to him and others that we were not responsible for the Topless Hill episode. The UFO investigators who uncovered Frank's hoax wanted answers to their own experience on Topless Hill, but they came up empty-handed. Frank denied completely that he had anything to do with it. It seems such a shame that the hoax was foiled when it was. I wonder how the story would be remembered now if on the day of the carnival Frank's flying saucer had appeared above the crowds. I'll come back to Frank's legacy later in the podcast. But what of Toppler's Hill? If it wasn't Frank's flying saucer that the four men saw, then what was it? At the heart of the Toppler's Hill incident is Shefford shopkeeper John Whitworth. In the one photograph I've seen of him, he has a mop of curly hair, a kind face and a big smile. By the early 50s, his shop had expanded into a drapers, outfitters and shoe shop known as the walk-round shop because to see everything in it, you had to have a good walk around. He advertised by employing a lad to ride a specially branded penny farthing around the neighbourhood. He was involved with the local community, including amateur dramatics and the local business guilds, including supporting the Business Women's Guild and the Women's Institute. He also appears in at least three episodes of the BBC's Town and Country radio show in 1957 and 58, talking about the history of Dead Man's Cross at Haynes in Bedfordshire, Clifton Pond and also the state of rural roads. Nothing ever changes. There's nothing to make you think he's the sort of chap to have a flying saucer or alien encounter. But in the November of 1956, a year before the Topless Hill incident, that is exactly what happens to him. John Whitworth tells the People newspaper that it started with a strange customer entering his shop. This funny customer had long hair and a domed forehead. Long hair at the time would have been quite unusual on a man. It appears their interaction was initially fairly straightforward. A funny customer purchased a pair of gloves for which he paid for with exact money. The exact money is mentioned not by Whitworth, but a fellow UFO investigator who clearly thinks that this is, in itself, a suspicious behaviour. But we'll meet Thelma, the investigator, later. Whitworth says, that it was only after the purchase of the gloves that the funny customer asked, Would you like to meet a flying saucer? The article doesn't tell us how Whitworth felt or how he responded, but he must have said yes, because he was told to report to Toppler's Hill on the 28th of November, 1956. Just a few words about Toppler's Hill, because imagine a strange person comes into your place of work and asks you if you'd like to see a UFO, and then sends you to a location. That location is important. There are definitely locations I'd be happier to hang out in than others on a dark night. Topless Hill is just south of Biggleswade. It is a hill, but it's not what many of you would think of as a hill. This part of Bedfordshire and all the way east to the coast through Cambridgeshire and Suffolk is flat and pretty featureless. Big skies but a monotonous landscape in winter. So Topless Hill is not a dramatic hill, but it does command a view of the surrounding flatter terrain, mainly of fields. It's just off the A1, or Great North Road, which back then was not a motorway by any means, and ran through the centre of Biggleswade. There were a collection of houses and farms scattered around Topless Hill area, 
but they're no longer there. I mean, who wants to live right on a motorway if you have a choice in the matter? There's also a water tower built in the 1930s and a small reservoir which nowadays is covered by a rather flying saucer-esque silver dome. I don't know if it was like that at the time. Either way, then and now it's a lonely spot and only featured in the newspapers of the time as an accident black spot or when, in the January of 1958, a poor unfortunate man from Hull was found dead in a ditch at Topless Hill. He'd died of starvation. He'd come south on New Year's Eve, looking for work. So that's the place Whitworth is sent to. I'm not sure if I'd have been keen to hang out there in the dark and cold, but John tells the People newspaper that he went there as instructed, and he saw a strange object that was circular, and as the object stood still in the sky, beams of light came out of what looked like portholes. Then it disappeared. Whitworth's thoughts about the encounter, again, are not recorded. I'm guessing the 1950s were not a time when men and journalists were encouraged to dwell on feelings, even when triggered by extraordinary things. I wonder if John Whitworth was already dabbling in flying saucer investigations in November 1956. Is this why he goes along with what the funny customer tells him? If he wasn't dabbling in UFOs before, he certainly is afterwards. As Frank Russell says, John has travelled thousands of miles in the pursuit of his answers by 1958. Almost a year to the day that that funny customer arrived in John's shop, he returns. This time there's no description of the strange chap buying anything, just that he tells Whitworth to go to Topless Hill every night for several nights from November the 27th onwards at around 8pm. Watch for an object like the sun that will make one complete circle in the sky. When you see this, you'll know that a flying saucer is due the next night. The whole setup does seem very elaborate and time consuming. Whether we're dealing with a sophisticated hoax, alien beings wanting to make contact, or hush hush military craft being shown off, there must be easier ways to go about it. However, our funny customer has given Whitworth the circumstances to predict when the UFO will arrive after the strange sun appears and in doing so gave Whitworth the chance to invite others along to witness it. Whitworth went to Topless Hill, just south of Biggleswade, every night from the 27th of November, and we know, thanks to the local newspaper report, that on the 29th of November, he was indeed in Biggleswade, where he was recording a meeting of the town's women's guild. They were holding a debate on whether husbands should help their wives in the home. And in case you're wondering, the debate was won by those proposing that men should indeed help their wives in the home. John was recording this debate so that he could play it back to the women, so they could hear their own recorded voices. And it really struck me how far we've come since the 1950s, technology-wise. The thought of hearing a recording of your voice being a novelty and something that had to be especially arranged seems quite quaint and old-fashioned. I do wonder if this was John's own recording gear or maybe something he'd borrowed from his BBC producer friend, Patrick. Either way, we know he was travelling to Biggleswade that night with recording gear and stopped off at Topless Hill to see if this sun would appear in the night sky. It didn't that night. He journeyed to Topless Hill every night for five nights until eventually something out of the ordinary happened. On the 1st of December, which was a cold and frosty night, John finally saw a sun moving in a full circle around the sky, just as was foretold. It was on. The next night, he was promised a flying saucer. I have no further information about what this bright object looked like, other than it being described as a sun, a description used a lot at the time to signify any unidentified bright heavenly body. And as far as our story is concerned, this incident is treated as a means to an end in the newspaper report. The appearance of this mysterious sun heralds the main event, which was set to take place the next night. 
Our main source of information for all of this is the Sunday People newspaper, which was published on Sunday the 4th of May, some five months after the Topless Hill incident. I know, a UFO sighting on Star Wars Day, 20 years before the first film is released. May the 4th be with you. The newspaper report explains that after seeing the promised sun, John Whitworth gathers a small team around him to witness the flying saucer. We don't know how he recruited them. I wonder if he knew them from his UFO investigations. Or were they customers in his shop or just friends? They make up a curious bunch. The Sunday People's main star witness is Flight Lieutenant Jack Hunter of RAF Henlow. He has 24 years service in the RAF, is described as a technical officer and is currently at RAF Henlow in order to take a guided missile course. He describes himself as being a UFO sceptic. It's clear why the people lead their article with him. He has expert knowledge in identifying aircraft and missiles. He will have been taught how to make observations and record them accurately for his work. He is the ideal witness. The newspaper describes Patrick Harvey, one of the other witnesses, as being 46 from Wendover in Bucks, incidentally where I was born, and a BBC producer. There is also mention in another article about him being a sound engineer and having a sound van with him that night. The final additional witness is farmer Alan Chandler. The People newspaper don't give him an age or directly quote him at all, though they did speak with him because he confirms the accounts of the other three. The paper claims that after getting wind of the story, they challenged Flight Lieutenant Hunter to confirm or deny the claims. It sounds like they doorstepped him. I'm not sure he had much choice in responding to them. And with Hunter's account, we are back where we started this episode. On that freezing cold evening of 2nd of December 1957, where four men braved the winter weather because they had been promised a flying saucer contact. What are they hoping to see? Hunter says he's a sceptic, but he goes along, he brings his binoculars... Patrick, the BBC man, has his sound equipment. Were they hopeful? Or did they doubt Whitworth? Were they excited? Scared? What did they think flying saucers were? Hush-hush military craft? Or do they think they're not of this world? Aliens or interdimensional beings? If Hunter was a sceptic, was he hoping to unmask a hoax that night? This is what he has to say. Just after eight o'clock. I picked up a speck low in the sky, about six miles off. I estimate that it was travelling at 100 to 150 miles an hour. As the object came towards us, I noticed it was amber-coloured. And as it came closer still, it stood out in my binoculars like a very bright miniature sun. It was roughly the same size as a large aircraft, but... It could not possibly have been an aircraft. There was no noise. It travelled about one and a half miles before it faded away. From the object position in the sky, I say it would have been impossible for anyone to have staged a stunt. Chandler the farmer and Harvey, our sound engineer, back up Flight Lieutenant Hunter's account and Patrick Harvey is quoted as saying... I find no normal explanation for what we saw. I am not saying we saw a flying saucer. It was something entirely unaccountable. The Sunday people yet again frustrate us by not giving us any further information, either from John Whitworth or about the effect that this had on the men. They do reiterate that Flight Lieutenant Hunter remained silent until now for fear of not being believed. And they also put in bold and capitals the fact that Hunter said it could not be an aircraft, nor a missile, and it could not be a stunt. There are a few things that we can infer from the small amount of information we have. The incident was well known locally, so I'm guessing it was an open secret, discussed down the pub and in John's shop, possibly and may be recorded in media that is lost to us. Whitworth certainly was able to get together a small team of people who were interested enough to brave the cold temperatures to witness a flying saucer, whether they were from his pool of friends and associates or local flying saucer enthusiasts. 
Whitworth was definitely hoping to capture some evidence in the form of a sound recording, maybe for one of his BBC radio projects. And I did wonder why they didn't try and get photographic evidence. Certainly cameras were not rare, many families could afford a camera at the time. I'm assuming though that the average photographic technology in 1957 just wasn't good enough for nighttime shooting. BBC sound equipment would have seemed like a safe bet if it wasn't for the fact that one of the most eerie features about this craft was that it made no sound. Again, I wonder what they expected. The flying saucer would make a noise? Like an aircraft engine? Or maybe a laser beam would come out and zap something? Or maybe even that the chap with the long hair and domed forehead would appear, maybe beamed down from the flying saucer? But they were at least trying to capture evidence. That isn't the end of the matter though. We do have another mention of the Topless Hill event in the press. Enter Thelma Roberts, a 29-year-old office worker by day, International UFO Observation Corps member by night. Every newspaper article of the time makes sure to mention her attractiveness. She's pretty with brown hair and dark eyes, they say, and she has a trusty Labrador dog called Mullins. She's the 1950s UFO hunting heroine we didn't know we had. Thelma turns up in the newspapers in late May 1957, about three weeks after the Topless Hill story is splashed across the front page of the Sunday People, and about a week before Frank's hoax is uncovered in the press. Thelma was interviewed about another flying saucer sighting in Runcorn, Cheshire, but the London Weekly News of May 22nd carries a wide-ranging interview with Ms Roberts in which she's asked about contacts between people and flying saucers, or their pilots and crew. And this is where our story gets murkier, because Thelma Roberts starts talking about John Whitworth and Topless Hill, but her account differs from the Sunday People's in a really dramatic and baffling way. This is what the weekly news prints. She, Thelma, spoke of an investigation she had carried out in Bedfordshire. There, a Mr Whitworth had a contact. A man with a very high forehead and an unusual presence came into his shop and bought a white handkerchief, paying for it with the exact money. The man asked Mr Whitworth if he would like to see a flying saucer and gave a number of directions. Mr Whitworth carried out the instructions and eventually a saucer appeared. A year later, the visitor reappeared and said that Mr Whitworth could have an actual contact. A large group of people, including a BBC recording van, went to the place of assignation. But no one else came and there was no sighting. This obviously contradicts what Flight Lieutenant Hunter, Whitworth himself and his two other witnesses say happened. And it seems unfathomable why less than three weeks after the story was splashed all over the Sunday People, one of the widest read newspapers of the day, that a UFO investigator would contradict it. And then what she says next is even stranger. She claims that late on the night of the 2nd of December, after the disappointment of the flying saucer not appearing, Whitworth was at home when he received a phone call. Hello, Shefford 396, John Whitworth speaking. Mr Whitworth, you have been very foolish. Whitworth passed the phone to someone else with him, possibly his wife, maybe to verify or get a witness to what was being said. Thelma doesn't say why. Yes, hello, who is this? This call is for John Whitworth, and for him only. In the article, Thelma gives no further information about Whitworth. She doesn't speculate as to what the phone call was about or who it was from, but the inference is that he was being warned and that by bringing together the witnesses and the BBC sound man, he had been foolish. Was that why the flying saucer hadn't shown up in Thelma's version of events? Or was the call just a neighbour, someone pulling his leg, or maybe someone genuinely worried for his reputation? But the biggest question is, did this phone call actually happen? Whitworth himself doesn't mention it. 
And why did Thelma say nothing showed up that night when it's been so widely reported that something did? It's not the only time that Thelma mentions Whitworth in the press. A day later, on the 23rd of May, the Hartford Mercury and Reformer runs a story about her interesting line of work with the international UFO observers. And she tells them about the day of vigilance they have planned for June when they want people to look to the skies for flying saucers. But the article also quotes her at the end saying this. Miss Roberts does not claim to have seen a UFO herself, but not so long ago, a shopkeeper telephoned her from Bedford to say that he had one of the little men in his shop. Surely this is a reference to Whitworth. Now, I'm going to speculate here, but I wonder if there was some kind of animosity between her and Whitworth. It's hard to tell, as all these reports are being filtered through the lens of journalists and ones from the 1950s at that, who are keen to raise an eyebrow to the fact that such a young and attractive woman is involved in something so kooky. But is she poking fun at Whitworth? Is the journalist poking fun? Or is she being deadly serious here with this one of the little men quote? She tells the story in the paper the day before completely seriously. There is one more curious thing, though, relating to Thelma, and not about Whitworth, but about Frank's hoax. On the 22nd of May, the London Weekly News prints the following in its article and interview with Thelma. Miss Roberts said there have been many reports of sightings from the same area, Bedfordshire. There were, of course, she said, many hoaxes. There was definitely one in Bedfordshire where a man built a striking replica of a saucer, which he could shoot into the air. They, the International UFO Observation Corps, had received countless reports from people who'd seen this, but the Corps were now wise to the hoax. As far as I can find out, Thelma is telling the journalist about Frank's hoax at least five days before the news breaks. The weekly news article runs on the 22nd of May. Frank's story is splashed across the national and regional newspapers on the 27th of May. It's likely that the original story and equivalent of a press release went live on the 26th, but that means Thelma is still jumping the gun by mentioning it. Is this what Thelma says on the 22nd? what finally pushes Frank to go to the press. They're only a few short weeks away from the carnival. It's clear that the UFO investigators, John, Thelma and their colleagues, had already uncovered the hoax, but it wasn't in the news until Thelma mentions it here. Whether Thelma's disclosure prompted Frank to come clean in the press or not, what I really still can't fathom is why Thelma claims that no craft was witnessed on Topless Hill when four witnesses have been all over the Sunday people saying they did see something. To knowingly contradict a published UFO investigation seems to go against everything that Thelma is promoting in her news articles. She is passionate about the scientific approach to investigating these phenomena, but she is also a firm believer in extraterrestrials. One theory could be that she wants to muddy the waters surrounding the incident, she is a real outlier as a young woman working in this field in the 1950s. Maybe she has some kind of beef with John Whitworth. But maybe the simplest explanation is the best and it was just one of those mix-ups. Either on her part, or maybe on the journalist's part, or a bit of both. This is how conspiracy theories are created out of thin air. And what of this phone call to Whitworth? He doesn't mention it. Is it because he thinks it was just a local neighbour pulling his leg? Or did it genuinely spook him? And he doesn't want to tempt fate by talking about it. It seems a bit like a cliche to us now. UFO investigator or witness receives mysterious threats from a shadowy official. Men in black. I'm guessing the UFO investigators like Thelma might have been aware of this type of experience because in 1947 there was a case with Harold Dahl and then the case of Albert K. Bender in the mid-50s, who both claimed to have been warned off UFOs by men in dark suits. But to the wider public, it must have been a novel idea that flying saucer encounters went hand-in-hand hand with warnings from sinister authority figures. So could Topless Hill have been a hoax? Frank Russell certainly rules himself out, and I'm inclined to believe him. 
though the description of the craft Whitworth sees in 1956 sounds a lot like Frank's flying saucer. But Frank's a family man by the mid-50s. He's flying his saucer on a playing field to fool his mates down the pub. I can't really see him setting up such an elaborate trap for someone he doesn't seem to have known, while certainly didn't know very well before all of this flying saucer business. Also, most importantly, Frank wasn't interested in pranking individuals. He wanted to create a general buzz about flying saucers, and he wasn't a vindictive man out to humiliate or laugh at anyone. And there's something about the Topless Hill incident, if it is a hoax, that just seems personal. So could someone else have hoaxed John Whitworth? Was he the type of man who would have been singled out to have such a trick played on him? Well, he was certainly a local character, well known for his shop and his local BBC broadcasts. He was involved in the Flying Saucer community, but we don't know if that was before his first sighting or as a consequence of it. I did discover one thing about him. He was argumentative, or at least would argue with customers in a good-natured way. There's a photograph of him in a canoe with three other younger men. It was taken below Tower Bridge in London. The story that goes with this picture is that John got into an argument with three young customers in his shop. They were in his early 20s and he was 36. The young customers accused John of getting fat from standing behind his shop counter all day. In the photo, he looks fit and healthy, but maybe a little softer and heavier than his younger companions. Either way, he challenged them to canoe from Avonmouth to Tower Bridge in London with him to prove that he hadn't gone soft. The photo shows them arriving at Tower Bridge. The young men are topless, but John is in a white shirt sleeves rolled up. He's grinning in the sunshine. This anecdote tells me a couple of things. He's clearly someone who will rise to an argument and rise to a challenge in a good-natured, bantering kind of way, I think. I don't think it was a bitter argument, but I think these customers got to him. And one of his customers, for a bit of fun, or with slightly more malicious intent, decided to play a trick on him. They were determined enough to send him on a wild goose chase, night after night, waiting for a flying saucer to arrive. Though surely the fun of this for the prankster would have been to see him each night waiting patiently and then leaving dejected and disappointed, yet coming back the next night and the next and the next to do just the same. It's cruel and that's why I don't think Frank had anything to do with it. If Topless Hill was a hoax, I think it was personal, someone who wanted to humiliate John, make him look daft. But there's one bit of the incident that I just can't get my head around as being part of a hoax. And that's what Flight Lieutenant Hunter saw on the 2nd of December. He's such a reliable witness because he's used to working with aircraft and missiles and identifying them, recording sightings from during the war. And I'm not saying it couldn't have been hoaxed. I really don't know, but it must have been a jolly good one to fool him. It also might be worth noting here that one of the young men who teased Whitworth and took part in that canoe challenge in August 1958 just three months after the Topless Hill news story was splashed across the newspapers, was from RAF Chicksands. He was a junior member of the Air Force, but Chicksands from 1950 to 1995 was a US air base. So this young man was in the US Air Force. Could it be possible that someone from the US air base at Chicksands was pranking Whitworth? Maybe they knew that on the 2nd of December, a new state-of-the-art US aircraft was going to fly over the Bedfordshire countryside and it was just another opportunity to have some fun with Whitworth again, like they had the year before. It's a theory. Chicksands is southeast of Topless Hill and as the crow flies, it's about six miles away. Hunter says the craft appeared about six miles away at first. Sadly, we don't know what direction Hunter said he saw it in. He just says, on the horizon, about six miles away. And it would have to be something really experimental for Hunter to not know what it was. He also would have known exactly where Chicksands was. The final hoax theory has to be that Whitworth himself was pranking everyone. But I can't find any indication that he was either a practical joker, had a connection with projects like this, 
or the skill and experience to orchestrate a flying saucer hoax. He wasn't like Frank. He certainly wasn't building UFOs in his shed. So I don't think John Whitworth was hoaxing us. I think he believed this was a real unexplained mystery. But then what was it if it wasn't a hoax? Whether it was aliens or the military, they certainly went about things in a really elaborate and nonsensical way. Why make John jump through so many hoops? Why not just show him the flying saucer? It's like everything feels like a hoax. The strange bloke in the shop and the weird instructions, they feel like a prank. And having to wait night after night for that flying saucer to appear, it just feels like a farce. But then, what was witnessed on the 2nd of December seems to be genuinely unexplained. An amber craft that was completely silent and moved really fast. So unless the hoaxers were tied up with the military and what was seen on the 2nd was an experimental craft after all, I really don't know what to make of it. But here's my best guess. John's shop was in the nearest town to RAF Chicksands. He clearly liked a bit of banter with his customers. Maybe a couple of his young American customers from Chicksands decided to play a prank on him. One of them raided the theatrical costume box, maybe even paid an old man to play the part for them. They sent him into that shop to entice John out with the promise of a flying saucer. Then they set up the sighting in 1956 in a way that made Whitworth jump through hoops for them and they had a good laugh at John's expense. Maybe, maybe just by coincidence, the next year they learnt that their base was going to fly a new experimental craft, something that could be mistaken for a UFO. So they decided to run the prank again, but this time they let John dig himself into a hole by inviting witnesses along. And he does just that. And the pranksters have their fun. Only gossip in the neighbourhood becomes so great a national newspaper gets wind of it and it hits the headlines. And if you want a bit of a conspiracy with your explanation, maybe the fact that there's only one obvious news story about it rather than multiple stories is because the US Air Force realise that Flight Lieutenant Hunter is describing one of their new aircraft and they don't want anyone putting two and two together so they encourage the press to not print anything more on this story who knows maybe they even phone Whitworth and warn him off just a theory there is of course always the slim chance that it was aliens what do you think would you go to these lengths to see a flying saucer or to make someone to believe that they'd seen one and have you ever seen a UFO if you know anything more about the Topless Hill episode or Frank Russell's engineering projects, please do get in touch. You can find Weird in the Wade on Twitter, Instagram and at the Weird in the Wade blog at weirdinthewade.blog. One final thought. Whether it's a hoax or whether it was aliens or interdimensional beings, I am curious that it happened at the same time of year both times the end of November, beginning of December. I'm just wondering if there was something in that, something around that time of year that maybe brought a particular group of people to the area who might have been involved in the hoax, or if it was something that's more paranormal or completely unexplained, what is it about that time of year? Why was this only ever happening at the end of November, beginning of December? It, it is a really curious part of the mystery. So if you have any theories, if you can think of any reason why um, that would be the case, I'd love to hear from you. I hope you've enjoyed today's stories about flying saucers, both hoaxed and unexplained. The story of Frank's flying saucer hoax was rediscovered a few years ago by a community arts project who were commissioned to make a monument to Frank's flying saucer. They used the nose cone of a tornado fuel tank, painted it bright yellow, and I think that's really fitting with the nature of Frank's own engineering projects being cobbled together with salvaged parts. You can see more about this on the Weird and the Wade blog. The Topless Hill incident seems to have largely been forgotten by the town. Another UFO sighting from near to Biggleswade that has also been largely forgotten is that of a 1953 sighting above Potton Woods. It's been overshadowed by other spooky goings on in the area. Next time on Weird in the Wade. What's haunting Potton Woods? 
A strip of the ancient Ampthill Forest, just northeast of Biggleswade, is associated with strange lights in the sky, hauntings, ghostly voices, and even phantom smells. Is this phenomena connected to a plane that crashed into the edge of the woods at the end of World War II? Or is there another explanation linked to the area's extensive fruit production? I'll speak with witnesses, paranormal investigators, and I travelled to the woods during bluebell season, where I had my own seemingly inexplicable experience, which I captured on my field recorder for the podcast. I'll tell you all about it in the next episode of Weird in the Wade. What's haunting Potton Woods? Thank you for listening to this episode of Weird in the Wade. I really appreciate your support. There are more episodes to listen to where you got this one from. The Weird in the Wade blog at weirdinthewade.blog has the show transcript and notes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at weirdinthewade. Please do follow, like and rate the podcast as it genuinely helps other people find us. And if you are able to, please consider buying me a coffee at Kofi website. Find me at ko-fi.com forward slash weird in the wade. The link is in the show description. I really appreciate any support and it makes a big difference as I'm currently raising money to buy a lav mic to make outside recording better quality for the show. But you can support the show by just sharing and recommending it to others and joining in the conversation about all things weird at our social media accounts. I look forward to seeing you online. The podcast was researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. Tess Savagir wrote the theme music, additional music and sound effects by Epidemic Sound. And the tawny owl at the start of the show was a sound clip from Joseph Sardin's BigSoundBank.com.